Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter. And coming in through my headphones and yours, the lusciously voiced engineer producer, Brandon. I can honestly say my voice has never been described as luscious, and I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of the day and possibly... Hey, Brandon, um, I never use your last name. Do you know that I do that on purpose because I want you to retain some anonymity and mystery to the Reverend Hunter listeners? I I personally appreciate that. Is that okay? Yeah, that air of mysteriousness. I'm I'm cool with having that. The whole man behind the curtain. Yeah, I... I also, um, you know, I just don't want people to like track you down <laughs> if they don't <laughs> like the podcast. I don't want them to like troll you on the internet. They can troll me, but I don't want them to troll you. Well, then, so I I'm. Think I mean, you you're welcome me. to throw. You, <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome to throw out your last name anytime you want. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to reveal that without your permission, so I'll just continue to call you Brandon on the pod. And if people can suss out your last name, then so be it. I'm sure if they've heard other shows on the network, my last name's dropped on their mind at least once. That's probably true. Did Did you have a nickname in like middle school or high school? No, but I had a I had a DJ name when I was a radio DJ for for a short. Oh, what was that? <laughs> it was uh, believe it or not, it was Carlos, which has <laughs> nothing to do with my name, me, or my personality. But I was a morning show intern. They uh, named me Carlos, and it stuck uh, when I became a DJ. Yeah. Did you use a last name or did you nope. just be like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Carlos? I, I would be cool and I'd switch it up to Los every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty much the only nickname I've ever had. And it's- All right, Carlos, I, I'm going to store that one away because that'll come in <laughs> handy down the road. I'm glad I told it to everybody. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so what you got going on this weekend? I have absolutely nothing going on this weekend, which I'm actually kind of looking forward to i'm gonna get some yard work done or whatever how about oh yourself? yeah 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 i mean me yeah well um it's early goose season uh there's just so many canada geese around as i'm sure you know oh yeah and uh there's there's an early canada goose season in minnesota it starts this saturday actually by the time people listen to this podcast that season will have begun so my son and I are going up to the cabin and there's a big group of about a hundred geese that stage up in the cornfield that's adjacent to our land. And um, we're going to try to shoot some of them when they come to the lake. The problem with geese, ducks are pretty much like clockwork. You know, if you get out half an hour before, like an hour before dawn, at about half an hour before dawn, the ducks, you know, will start flying around and will come in. Geese aren't like that. How geese are, are un- geese are unpredictable. In which way? Which or is it just their timing, their habit? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like they come in. We have the we have these big patches of wild rice on our lake, and the geese will come in. But I, so I've been kind of scouting them, you know, um, for the last month or so. One day they come in at ten a.m. The next day they come in at noon. The next day they fly in at five p.m. So. Am I really gonna sit out there for twelve hours waiting for geese? Plus, not to mention that geese don't taste that great um, compared to ducks. But uh, anyway, all this is reinforcing why I think geese are the most annoying bird on this planet. Oh, dude, they're super I mean, annoying. And sometime we'll get everything. Yeah, sometime we'll get into like the weirdness of how there were no geese around for a <laughs> long time, and they found a little group of them south of Rochester, Minnesota, and they brought them back. And now somehow the, these these animals have evolved to eating golf course grass, you know, so they can basically survive eating on that, eating that crap. Anyway, uh, we'll try to shoot some geese. I'll give you an update um, and let you know how it went. But I will say this, and here's another awesome, brilliant segue by me. <laughs> if you're going to shoot geese, my recommendation is you grind them up and make them into meatballs. And how would and you what do- <laughs> and what better to do that with than a Walden's meat grinder for, uh, and and I just happen to have one what? thanks to the wonderful guys at the Meat Gistics podcast. See, that's wonderful. What? So 
So there you go. So you're you're also just testing out the product too. You're you're getting some geese. Yeah. You're, you're testing out the product as well. What um what what score would you give me on that segue? That was like a triple sow cow of segues. It was good. You caught me off guard. I thought you were segueing <laughs> into the next piece. Bam! You caught me with the Waltons bit. Yeah, you're like, how's he gonna how's he gonna work a sponsorship announcement in this brilliant intro? Oh my gosh, it, it was there. <laughs> <laughs> Walton's, Walton's benefited from such a brilliant segue. <laughs> well, I will. If I do shoot geese, I guarantee you I'm going to throw them right into the grinder. Not the whole goose, mind you, just the meaty parts. Are going to go into the grinder with some pork fat, and you mix them up with some spices, and you make some uh, goose uh, goose meatballs, like some German-style meatballs with onions and serve them in gravy people don't even know they're eating goose it's, right. it's excellent it's excellent well that sounds great that really does i hope you get a chance so yeah thanks to waltons for that well uh hey this week what a great guest bracy hill is a professor at baylor he also happens to be a hunter he also happens to be uh, a trained theologian <laughs> and he also happens to be the guy who edited and wrote the book uh, that like the only book ever written on theology and sport hunting, which makes him a real standout, unique uh, person in the world and a perfect guest for the Reverend Hunter podcast. His book is called God, Nimrod, and the World, Exploring Christian Perspectives on Sport Hunting. And I own it. I'm looking at it right here. Uh, we we talk in the podcast about who is Nimrod. You're probably wondering. I think there's actually a high school in Minnesota that has the Nimrods as their um as their mascot. I should have looked that up before in the we city started. City of recording. Nimrod, the Nimrod Nimrods. Is there a city of Nimrod, Minnesota? Yeah, there, Maybe that's what I'm yeah, thinking. There about. is Nimrod, Minnesota. So that must be it. Then it must be the Nimrod. I don't know hunters. They should be they should. because he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is one of the very few things uh, that the Bible says about Nimrod, but I don't want to give it away. We get into that in the second half of the interview. We talk a lot about Texas hunting. We talk about the ranch he lives on. We talk about Baylor where he teaches. Yeah, he's a he is a fascinating fellow. I am quite sure that he will be back on the podcast as a repeat guest because we've even been just texting today about how much more we have to talk about and share. Uh, so that's uh, that's this week's interview. I really think you all are going to love it. And you, like me, when we get to the end of it, will want more of Bracey Hill. He's an awesome guy. You can look check him out at BracyHill.com and uh, look at his headshot. We talk about that too. Look at his headshot when you <laughs> and, go and there. A, and a quick producer's note: I'm just going to add this. He's got one of the coolest like voices and deliveries with his, <laughs> his Texas bit. So listening to him is actually kind of a pleasure. Just just the way he talks. In all honesty, and the phone connection kind of helped too. But but uh, yeah, yeah, listening to him is a treat. He's he's a no. It's true. He really does have that funny like Central West Texas accent. I think. Uh, which is super cool. So, yeah, well, without further ado, let's get on to my conversation with Bracey Hill. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Give us a subscribe, a like, a rating, share it with your friends. Let everybody know about the Reverend Hunter podcast. We really appreciate your support. Hey, Bracey Hill, welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thrilled that uh, thrilled, thrilled you would join me. Yeah, glad to be here with you. Tell uh, t tell us where you are today. Are you at your ranch? I am at my ranch. I'm sitting in my office uh, and looking out the window at cats that are walking by my window hunting geckos. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's beautiful and dry here. Unfortunately, the hurricane left us no rain. So, what? Yeah. Yeah, well, you live enough inland. There's some weird weather patterns here in central Texas. We get sometimes what's called a heat dome that repels rain. And besides, oh, man, I'm not sure. Sounds like I think a Stephen God, King novel. Oh, trust me, it's just <laughs> like it. So anyway, I'm I'm here at my ranch, the Flying H, uh, in Central Texas, uh, and it's uh, it is a beautiful day. Yeah, Matt, tell me about the Flying H Ranch. I'm interested. What what, well, what goes on around there? 
Not a lot, to be honest. We, uh, <laughs> we, no, uh, my wife and I went through a, a new chapter in life about seven, eight years ago, and we had always desired to have some land in a more rural area. And so we, uh, we, we went ahead and embraced the change and bought some acreage in uh, central Texas. In Texas, of course, there's lots of people who have thousands and thousands of acres. Most of the time, it's been inherited from generations. Uh, but yeah. this is what generally called a ranchette. Uh, so uh. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, so we were, we were enamored is, is actually sounds more sa- sarcastic than I intend, but enamored with the homesteading idea. And we wanted a place that we could uh, raise animals for in okay. particular rescue, rescue animals and uh-huh. uh, also hunt and fish off of it. And we got that through a lot of labor all the time. Is that right? Like so, what, what kind of animals you got roaming around there now? Well, we have uh, the remnant of our rescue herd of goats. Uh, they're now seven years in process, almost eight, and we're down to just a couple. We've got a donkey who just showed up one day, uh, and so we, we took him in, and we've been feeding him and taking care of him for the last seven years. He's wild, completely wild. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so we just named him Donkey in a Shrek kind of, you know, because <laughs> when things get bad, since you can't touch him, there is only so much type of care that you can provide him other than his, you know, his water and feed and the like. So yeah, so we got Donkey, we've got goats, we've got cats that are rescued and strays. We have dogs that have just shown up or we've gone to uh, to the rescues in town. And so we've got dogs, cats goats and donkey nice yeah yeah it's nice it is it it it, it adds variety to life um okay you're a professor at baylor and for for anybody who wants to see uh, if you go to if you go to bracyhill.com if you go to your website if someone goes to your website and they click on the about tab and it's you know the bio we've all got them i got it on my site and stuff Right, right you have the most freaking badass headshot <laughs> portrait i'm guessing dude I, you're like in a, you're like in a cowboy hat showing your like concealed carry like your sport coat your professorial sport coat is like pulled back just enough to show your sidearm i'm like holy shit you're in front of a you're behind a rusty gate I just think there are not, I've I've spoken at Baylor a few times back in the day. I spoke at uh, I spoke at Compulsory Chapel at Baylor. Is it just yeah, for, not, is it for first year students? It's compulsory. Is that right? Uh, I think so. Here's the sad thing: I have been at Baylor since 2004 as a graduate student and then as uh, a teacher, and I've never been to chapel. So uh, there Dude. you go. <laughs> and they've never asked you to speak. No, oh, <laughs> hell no! Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, because they, because they, because the chaplain at Baylor pulls up your website and sees that. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm afraid we. Im- yeah, we. We don't rock the same path. Let's just put it that way. So. <laughs> well, oh, I'll tell man. you what. I'll just just tell you in case you ever do get invited. I mean, here's the thing. Yeah. I, it, it's it is one of the hardest gigs i've ever done and the reason is because that the chapel at baylor is huge i mean everything at baylor is huge right it's a huge auditorium very dark and all you can i mean okay this is my memory of it you look out you know the spotlights are blinding and you look out and all you can really see is the white earbuds in all the kids' ears. <laughs> <laughs> but they're there. <laughs> no, well, they're there because they had to like swipe their ID card to prove that they came to chapel so that they can graduate from Baylor. I do remember in the front row, there were like all the kids who are in the worship band and the, you oh, know, yeah? the, the kind of actively Christian kids. And they were very right, engaged right. and like nodding and giving me good eye contact. But but behind that man, there was just a sea of faces of kids asleep with earbuds in. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it was pretty fun though, and it was another. Fu- I I do also remember this is that the the girl backstage, you know, the the Baylor student who was you know a work study student, and her job was to run sound at the at chapel. She was clipping on my microphone, and I had stopped at that. What's that? There's a boot 
there's a boot shop that's you see billboards all the way from Dallas to Waco um, on the way. And I stopped and I bought a pair of Ariats and it was my uh-huh. first legit boot. You know, you yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah she cav- cop- yeah. Go ahead. Oh, what are they? What is it? We place? may have been Cavenders, maybe Cavenders. Um, it might have been that. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a place that okay. like every five miles, you, you drive out of Dallas and all I remember <laughs> that the billboards are for cowboy boots and reverse your vasectomy. Those are the, those are the billboards. <laughs> the closer you get to Houston, the more reverse vasectomy signs you see. I don't know why. <laughs> so I stopped and bought these Ariats. I, I wore them. I, I wore them to my chapel speaking gig and the the gal as she's hooking up my microphone she says hey those are real working boots and i thought <laughs> okay if a baylor student tells me that i'm in waco and my i get complimented on my boots i'm doing something right nice yeah nice. That was yeah the, 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 the photo on my website is uh i was over at my buddy's place his, his name's luke stokes he runs a photo company and and drone business a uh, photo okay. drone business called Blackland Prairie. And so we were just, you know, shooting the breeze. And I was like, man, you should go into Second Amendment photography as a side. You know, <laughs> take pictures of babies, take pictures of people with their guns, you know. And he's like, let's do it. I mean, so that's that was just what I had on that day, you know. so It's funny fun. because you scroll down and it's like you with a big smile on your face holding up fish or like duck hunting and you got a nice wood duck in your in your hands and you yeah, look yeah. so nice but at the top of the page man you you look like a freaking badass so I, occasionally <laughs> you got to you got to butch up occasionally you know I love it I love it I love it um so you're a man you're a rare breed and it's why I want I mean you and I have chatted on the phone a few times and corresponded I I reviewed your uh book yeah, I want yeah. you to tell us a little bit about that. But first of all, I, I'd really like you to you know set the context because you're you're a rare breed um, in that you study religion and hunting. You're a, you're, you're your field is history, right? You're you're not your field yeah, isn't theology; is history. Is that, am I right? So about I did, that? and I I did an undergraduate in history and classics. Uh, okay. But then I end up going to Notre Dame and doing a, a master's in theology. Oh, and then okay. I, awesome. I, was, I spent years as a teacher in a preparatory school in South Bend, Indiana, a classic school. And then I taught Latin. I taught theology. I taught history. And then mm. I decided, you know, I had a midlife crisis. And the wife said, essentially, keep being a good teacher uh, and, and shut up about going back to grad school or mm-hmm. put up and go to grad school. And, mm-hmm. and I did it on a whim and went and got a Ph.D. in religion. Now. Within those two degrees, there was a focus on history. So gotcha. I am a rare breed. I went over to the other side. So I left religion and theology, went to history, and have tried in many ways to demonstrate that I'm actually a good historian, but I can talk both sides. In many ways, again, it, my thing is I'm in the middle and on the edge, and mm-hmm. that pretty much is also my professional career as I teach in the history department as a historian. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I, you and I have a lot of uh, overlap in our lives, not only because of the hunt, the, the interest in hunting and right. and the morality and ethics of it, a little bit deeper look at hunting. But I was a classics major undergrad as well, then got a master's of divinity right out of um, kind of like you did, straight into a yeah. grad program, got a master's at a seminary, and then. 10 years later and got into a PhD program. So after 10 years of being a pastor and a missionary is when I went back to get my PhD in my early, well, I guess mid thirties, I guess. And it took me a long time. You probably finished it faster than I did, but um, you, yeah. um, Did you go into theology out of uh, personal belief and practice or more out of uh, interest in the subject matter? So uh, I grew up in a home of Pentecostal minister. My father also was a professor at a Bible college, a couple of Bible colleges. Uh, So my great grandfather was a Pentecostal minister. My grandfather was my father, my uncles in law. uh, And I decided to take a different route. Uh, And during college, I began to really begin to think about things in a critical Mm -hmm. fashion. Uh, I would consider myself relatively naive in many ways. Uh, and so I had a kind of 
experiential background, but not necessarily a theological background. I had a pretty decent biblical background as well. So uh, I began to have questions and think and question my own faith. And I, this is before really the internet. So I didn't know what I was supposed to go to grad school. There was no one there to help me. You know, you found Mm -hmm. out about grad programs by going to a book. Uh, I remember, man, I'm in the same boat. Yep. Yeah. I applied to two grad schools. They both gave me invitations and money. And I asked my girlfriend, soon to be my wife, where do you want to go live? <laughs> and so it was between Vanderbilt and Notre Dame. Okay. And, uh, oh, we yeah, had, very we saw, different. We, yeah. And we saw the movie Rudy. Uh, and that's how I knew about Notre Dame. And I was like, well, where do you want to go? And she's from Alaska. So the further north was better. And so we went to Indiana. And that's literally as much thought as I put into wow. going to grad school. And uh, what did your parents yeah. think when you – they're Pentecostal ministers yeah. and you're going to a yeah. Catholic grad school? Well, I think initially I was going to hell, um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, they, they're rolling with stuff in life, uh, and yeah. uh, they were proud of me, you know. I remember the first time we walked on campus, and, you know, the beauty of the campus, it's, it, to be honest, it's got to be one of the most gorgeous campuses in the U.S., yes. and, uh, and so they, they were very proud of what I was doing, and, you know, I did a master's of arts, so I, I was going the academic route. Okay. And so they, 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 they encouraged me uh, once I was there. I mean, I had to make all the decision-making on my own and, and stuff like that. So anyhow, the long and short is I chose to do theology because I thought I was doing history of Christianity, and I didn't realize how much theology would be involved in it. And so oh, I got kind of yeah. dropped in. I mean, they tried to throw me out of the program the second week of class because uh, they realized I knew nothing. And Because uh, <laughs> so, a lot of these kids in your master's program, I suppose, had gone to Jesuit undergrad or had oh, grown yeah. up Catholic, and they knew they kind of knew some theology. And, man, you grew up raising, raising your hands and speaking in tongues. That's a very different Absolutely. experience of Christianity. Yeah, and so it was. It was. I was a fish out of water in a million different ways. I mean, I had known four Roman Catholics in my life. One of which wow. was my Latin professor in college, who was a religious, a religious, and uh, mm-hmm. so that was about it. I mean, so it was. But it was a fascinating experience. I remember it blew my mind the first time I took a job at this school that was predominantly associated with a Pentecostal pardon me, a charismatic renewal movement that had come out of Notre Dame area in the 1960s, 1970s. And they had started this school to educate their own children. Many of them were Notre Dame professors, mm-hmm. and they wanted to provide an excellent, um, excellent education. And I, when I was there, the school was, I guess, about 20, almost 20 years old. And we, we, they won their fourth blue ribbon from the department of education, which put them with like 30 schools in the, in the entire U S. But I remember going to a party, a bachelor party, if you will, for one of the faculty members, new faculty member. And of course it was not what you would imagine with a bachelor party, people standing around. But I remember watching this guy and in one hand, he had a whiskey and a tumbler. And the other hand, he had a cigar and he was laying hands on this guy and praying in tongues <laughs> as a Roman Catholic. It blew my freaking mind. I, I mean, I was st- <laughs> I was twenty something years old, and even That's though I'd awesome. started you know, thinking for myself, it, it just it blew all my categories away, you know. Uh, and That's and that's awesome. been kind of my life. Yeah. That's incredible. I I have a just a quick tangent question. Um, yeah. How's your Latin? Is your Latin rusty, or, oh, could, or, or does it dink? Okay, <laughs> I'm good. I'm not the only one because I spent so many years taking Latin in high school and college, and I mean I could still read it, but yeah, I I really wish I would have. It's going to be one of my you know regrets on my deathbed that I didn't keep my Latin up to snuff. You know, it only really shows up for me in a few occasions. In my dissertation, I had to go back and do a crash course because I did uh, study mm-hmm. on Enlightenment thinkers and the rational religion, particularly amongst Presbyterians and the independents. And mm-hmm. they were going to the Netherlands to get their degrees because they couldn't get it from Oxford or from Cambridge. And one guy's master's thesis was written in Latin. Oh, my goodness. 
Uh, it, it just absolutely <laughs> killed me. And his correspondence, yeah. which is because in these archives, is in Latin and Greek. And oh, I, I killed I, – I lost my hair, or at least part of it during that time period. <laughs> I think and a lot of it had to do with trying to relearn Latin to do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I loved it, but I, I, I have not kept up on it. Well, did you grow up hunting? Or is or is are you an adult onset hunter? Uh, no, and yes. So uh, the my family was uh, the came. Well, let's put it in perspective. They came to Texas in eighteen twenty five, uh, and so they have been here for generations. And hunting, particularly as they lived along the coast, the Gulf Coast of Texas, hunting has long been a part of the tradition. In fact, my Ancestors who came to Texas were noted for no, keeping pet animals like raccoons, uh, but mm. also killing bears. And so there's this long tradition that's been there of this idea of both sporting, but also subsistence or at least uh, supplementary type of foodstuffs coming from hunting. But by the time I came along, the 1970s, uh, mm. my father was committed Pentecostal minister uh, he was going to Bible school. He was a volunteer fireman. Uh, he was doing all this type of stuff. And to be honest, he had far more attention to God uh, and to his people, his, his flock, than he did, and not us as kids, but getting us out to do the things that he had yeah. done as a child. Also, yeah. he was dirt poor. And being dirt poor meant that accessibility was very limited, particularly in in the South, in Texas, among other places. So you had to have money to go. Uh, and of course, that meant Sundays and the weekends were either sermon prep or ch church. So there was very little going on the weekend. So what we did do out of doors was fish because fishing was free. Fishing was democratic. Yeah. Uh, we'd go fish along the coast and you'd be, you'd be fishing on jetties next to African-Americans and very recent Vietnamese immigrants. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that was what we could do. So it wasn't until I was in college that I began to get interested in it, and I mooched off my dad, and I would hunt on some property that he had access to by way of his students. And then when I went to Notre Dame, uh, I ended up going to a small Pentecostal church with my wife, and there was a farmer there who found out I was interested in hunting. He said, oh, come on out. The land, the hunting area really was not great, but I had free access to it. Mm. and mm. there were i suddenly began to teach myself how to hunt and i've been shooting since i was four but hunting something different and so it was part of my tradition it was part of my legacy it was part of my culture in the shaping of my mind and imagination by way of stories of the previous generations but it really mm. wasn't part of my experience and claiming it as part of my experience until i was in college and really grad school okay yeah. You know, Texas is not known for having much public land. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. 97% or so is all privately owned. And oh. there is some public land, but it's generally in very small sections. And so, you know, it, it may be Corps of Engineer land. It may be state parks. And there are a few, you know, federal things. But most of it's state land, and it's very small and relatively poor for hunting. So, for instance, if you're familiar okay. with the BHA, yes. uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, so I was giving a talk at Kansas State, I guess it was last year, for BHA, and um, I had people come up to me from Texas, and they were saying it's really hard to get a chapter going despite Texas being big and have tons of people. It's really hard to get people to be hunting public lands. Fishing's fine, but hunting yeah. public lands because there's just not access and or animals. Yeah, so, I mean that, and that's that's the big issue for BHA is public land and public access. That like that's their you know if 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 the big issue for pheasants is or pheasants forever is pheasant habitat, the big issue for BHA is public land, public access, both to you know hunting land and to water for fishing. Te Texas, man. Texas hunters take a lot of shit on. I mean, you, you can't <laughs> you can't listen to a hunting podcast without hearing somebody uh, complain about Texas uh, high fence ranches with exotics. 
you know, I, I'm I, I, the only time I the only hunting I've ever done in Texas was I duck hunted with my buddy Jason years ago in some flooded timber east of Dallas, and we had just a great morning. And I would come back to do that kind of hunting anytime. But do you do you feel defensive of Texas hunting, or are you critical of it, or are you ambivalent? Where do you stand on the uh, on the way the rest of us view Texas hunting. Well, I'll tell you what, this is what I hear. I hear complaints and I hear, you know, ethical debates all about Texas hunting, high fence hunting. And then the next thing I hear is people asking for invitations to come down. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I mean, and it's yeah. not just duck hunting. It's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that high fence hunting. Oh, you've got a large ranch with axes with exotics or pigs. Uh, and we have millions of pigs in Texas. It looks like the numbers are kind of, I noticed the latest numbers coming out this week from Texas Parks and Wildlife are arguing that the numbers are pretty much kind of holding about five to 6% increase in the number of uh, wild pigs, feral swine that are you know populating uh, our environment. And of course mm -hmm. they're competing with white-tailed deer. Uh, primarily. But that said, we, of course, do have exotics, and they're not all behind fences. We now have, uh, most estimates have around a million or so animals that are wild, feral exotics, whether they be uh -huh. axis deer, red deer, so, uh, you know, yeah. from, of course, Europe. I even killed a feral elk. What? In the middle of, yeah, I kid you not, a couple years ago, I, I got on this lease. It's a low fence lease. And the first year I was on there, my buddy and I both killed red deer. We didn't know what we killed, but we knew it was it wasn't a deer, so it was legal. Uh, and so we, it was just a bizarre. I mean, I sh I shot mine with a five five six uh, mm. a couple of times, several times. Um, and I was standing and and came up on it. Anyway, all that is to say, the next year I killed an elk. Uh, wow. It just walked out, and and I killed that with a five five six. Uh, which was crazy since I shot it less than uh, less than 10 yards from me. Actually, it was pretty close to about 20 feet from me. And it crashed right. into my blind, its head underneath my seat. Uh, and I had to put, yeah, don't, I have pictures. <laughs> I remember sh I showed it to Steve Ranella. We were having, we were having lunch and, uh, and I'm telling stories. And of course, he's kind of bored with my stories. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I shot <laughs> <Right>. this out. <laughs> And it's, oh, you shot an elk. Yeah, yeah. Is it really an elk? Yeah, yeah, it's an elk. And I said, and I told him, I said, you know, it crashed into me. I fired once, hit it in the chest, fired another time, it ended up breaking its leg. It crashed into my pop-up line, landed underneath my stool, alive, blinking its eye at me. And I just lifted my leg, put my gun down, and shot it eh, to put it down quickly. He's like, no. I'm like, hey, here's pictures. <laughs> he looked at the pictures, and he's like, can you send me that? <laughs> so I was like, ah, I got cred for a moment. Um, yeah. yeah, so – so long and short is Texas has a lot to offer because of the breadth of its or the diversity of its environment, but also because of the animals that are present. So the diversity of the animals that now are wild, but they're also behind high fence. So I will tell you, I swore I would never hunt high fence. Mm -hmm. And this summer for the first time, I did a high fence hunt with my cousin. And I went for and yeah, I haven't written about it. So I have a I have a blog, Hunting Academics, um, yep. and and we're starting a YouTube page. I'm not quite sure. It's mostly going to be for my students and my classes that I teach about the history of hunting. But uh, I haven't. It's been over a month now, and I haven't fully processed how one what I want to say and two where I stand on it. But okay. uh, in short, I went uh, on an axis hunt with my cousin. In summer, because axis uh, have a, they can essentially breed twice a year, so males go in and out of velvet. So you've got some in velvet and some that aren't. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I shot a very relatively small axis uh, buck, and it's in the freezer. Processed it myself, which threw them off because they're used to, of course, processing it for these people. You know, right, they drop right. a, a load of change. It was, it was, it was difficult. As you talk about the idea of the ability to have a wild, with quotes around the animal, the yeah. idea of uh, fair chase, if you will, and how that plays out, and then, of course, the question of motivation from the people who have these animals within certain confines, but these are man-made confines, 
Yeah. And uh, it, it was really interesting. Let's just put it down. So, I'll be so happy to talk more about it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't want to. I, I don't want to ask you to make some profound statement if you're still processing it and and planning to write about it and stuff. But I am in. So that elk you shot, just yeah. so listeners understand, like somebody imported that elk into Texas, and it escaped from the confines of of probably a high fence ranch somehow, and then it was exactly feral and wild, Fair. and then. The state of Texas allows you to take that animal because it's non-native? Yeah, okay. So elk are really tricky too, by the way. So the red deer, I've killed a couple of red deer. And okay. uh, they are, again, not native to Texas. You have to have a license, but they are okay. an exotic species. A uh, Now, I'm going to say this, but you know, double-check the manual. They are a non-game animal and therefore not regulated. Interesting. Uh, but you, okay. you do have to have a license. And in theory, yeah. you could kill them year-round. And okay. uh, so that's true. Now, the elk is interesting because red deer clearly are not native to North America or to Texas. So Texas pretty right. much runs its regulations on animals that are native to the state. So white-tailed deer, heavily regulated. White-tailed deer behind high fence, still regulated. And that's tricky because there's a question of many high fence uh, owners don't want Texas Parks and Wildlife to step in to manage or to oversee their deer. Of course, they don't. Deer. Of course they, don't. they also so want the, to so secede t- from the United States, bro. Hey, hey, we're working on that. Uh, but we can, we've got a claim to that one. But, uh, but then the response, Texas Parks and Wildlife kind of responds, well, then fine, we'll treat them like cattle. Oh, no. Which they puts them under either. the – that's federal. Now, that are they – are they game animals or not, or are they right. to be managed by? Yeah, exactly. So there's an interesting goes to Texas, but back to the elk. So elk are interesting because there is a claim by some that there actually was a native western herd of elk in Texas. Definitely, it seems as though we have fossils, you know, within, I don't know whether or not it's within historic era or not. But that's okay. what their argument is. So they were once native, therefore they should be regulated. Others say they're not native. There's no historical record of them being native, and therefore they should not be regulated. So it's a weird thing. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's no. It's fascinating. We just don't have that kind of thing up here in Minnesota. You know, when all, all, our issue is, of course, CWD with white-tailed right. deer and trying to fight it back and everybody kind of feeling like it, it's inevitable that it's going to take the herd, you know. Um, but you, you, th- you think a lot about ethics. I mean, you, you have such an interesting and, and like we said, rare, maybe even unique intersection of studying uh, theology and studying history you know what when you when you look historically at the practice of sport hunting like where do you think we are right now relative to where we've been are are we in a good place do you feel like uh all the conservation efforts of the last 120 years have been great like thank god for teddy roosevelt and uh or do you look back wistfully on you know the middle ages when nobility were running through the forest hunting down stags and peasants or something like <laughs> what's your as an historian what what's your take on where we are right now relative to where we've been mixed so yeah i think it's fantastic that we have seemingly uh, committed ourselves to at least the conservation of certain species of animals and therefore maintained or brought back a diversity here in North America. Um, mm-hmm. We many times think, obviously, of the bison. Uh, we think and should think, of course, of turkeys. Uh, think of turkeys, for instance, that have been yeah. relocated. Mus- muskox. Uh, were eradicated from Alaska in, by the 1800s, but reintroduced from Greenland. And mm-hmm. so we, we've done so much to bring about uh, animal diversity in this continent and therefore give people opportunities not just to see them, but to participate in the hunt. We had excess and exploitation of the environment 
both animals and everything in the earth and on the earth in the 19th century. And we continue that exploitation today. I mean, think about the millions of animals, yes, that are killed every year by hunters. But, but there are estimates that we are in the billions of animals slaughtered each year in America for food. Definitely, yeah. uh, if you look at uh, the numbers from the federal government, USDA kind of stuff, you're getting roughly around 15 million animals per month. If you just count the mammals like swine, mutton, uh, bison, uh, cattle, veal, uh, and I'm sure I'm leaving goats. Uh, so you're looking at roughly eh, 15 million animals. So hunting is only touching a, a small portion of the animal life in America. Yeah. yeah. And I think that there's something very rewarding there. Where are we in a trajectory? I would argue in some ways that we're moving back to that Middle Ages you're talking about, where only mm -hmm. the wealthy have who have time and have mm -hmm. access mm -hmm. to land and to natural resources get the opportunity to go hunting. I gave you this. I mentioned my father was. I mean, he yeah. made little or nothing, uh, even right. as a Bible college professor at the beginning of his career and all the way through his career. So there was no time or money to go get a lease, which is mandatory in Texas if you really want to hunt. Gosh. So what you have increasingly as land disappears and even as ranches get broken up, uh, low fence ranches get broken up and turned into smaller and smaller sections is the idea that you have to pay to play. And yeah. not very many people can afford to pay. I couldn't have paid for, it would not have been reasonable for me to pay for the high fence hunt I did this summer. It was subsidized by my cousin who wanted me to be there with him. How much how experience. much would it have cost a normal uh, how much would it have cost a normal guy to is go a problem do that and hunt? I see it spreading across the United States where access to land is increasingly hard to find unless you're able to pay for it. So I think we had a sweet spot in the nineties where you had yeah. extraordinary boom of white tailed deer and uh, you know populations soared and we've dropped off of those. Uh, and as a result of that, a lot of people go hunt farmland, etc. That democracy, we return to kind of more democratic hunting, but we're seeing that disappear. What am I excited about? I am excited about the fact that I am encountering more and more hunters who are being educated by YouTube. And you say, that's not great. But I think it's great in some ways. Yeah. They're being educated by the Steve Ranellas of the world, etc. because they're parents, their generally father and grandparents did not introduce them to hunting, but they're looking into it as a kind of participation, a more deeper participation in life. And I think yeah. that's fantastic. So you've got two trends. One is, I think, uh, the limiting of access and availability. I also see, though, in some ways, a resurgence in a I don't want to say hipster fashion, but a, a, a resurgence of hunting and interest in it and an ethical pursuit of it by the current generation and a tutorial that didn't exist before. And that particularly is the Internet and YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. No, I so mean, that's I think there's a lot to be excited about right now. I think there's yeah. a lot to be concerned about. And I think if we're thinking about the ethics of it, I think that this current generation that is entering into hunting for the first time, or there's been a break in generations, have the opportunity to be more ethical in some ways or be more contemplative or thoughtful about their hunting than maybe the previous generations for whom it simply was a tradition with not a lot of consideration of what you were doing. You were simply right. doing what had been done before. Yeah, that I think you're making such a valid point, such a good point, because I, I'm I'm right in that category, you know, where my my grandparents did not hunt, and my uh, parents did not hunt, and I mean I don't think any of my four grandparents um, ever butchered an animal, really, probably that that, that was considered it was considered success if you didn't have to butcher animals like that's what your that's what your forefathers did on the farm or whatever and and for you to go to college and and not have to do that anymore so so for me to take a turn into that it was it has been very deliberate and i do think a lot about it i don't take it for granted i don't take you know hunting access for granted and i don't take the deer that i shoot or the pheasant or duck 
for granted. And sure enough, I mean, you also named it like I've I've had to watch YouTube videos to figure out how to sight in a rifle, um, how how to butcher a deer, you know, that kind of thing. That that's exactly where I've learned some of that stuff, listening to podcasts and reading books and that kind of thing. So I, I want to turn. I think it's related what you've been saying to your book, um, which has the um, compelling title "God, Nimrod, and the World." Um, tell first of all, I, I mean, I've got some questions that relate even to what you've just been saying. Uh, and that's, you know, it's, it's very much my own story too, because I didn't, uh, grow up hunting. I've had to learn myself. Like I have actually watched YouTube videos on how to butcher a deer or how to sight in a rifle. I didn't learn any of that stuff from my parents or grandparents. Um, you know, they never butchered an animal. Um, so I like this point you've made that it makes us a little more thoughtful about it. Um, but I'm wondering, who's Nimrod? Can you tell us who Nimrod is? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Depend. It, it, I have a shirt. I gave a, a, a talk at a, a, a benefit a couple years ago, and they put it together. It's for a... a a nonprofit in in Dallas, and, and the shirt has simply across the chest a black shirt with white letters, and it says Nimrod. That's all it says. <laughs> and uh, I think from and it's great, and, and I love the shirt. And uh, actually, I bought a couple of just the other day. I'm like, hey, got a few left over because when you walk around and you and, and people see Nimrod, they don't know what to think. Uh, and right. that is, I think most of them think it's a disparaging term meant to oh, i don't think they've actually even thought about it but in most cases it seems to be someone who is probably backwards quote unquote and they're thinking definitely not progressive whatever that means um and uh, of low intelligence and definitely not someone who thinks and the word nimrod and the person of nimrod however has been variously interpreted throughout well, let's just say throughout the Judeo-Christian tradition, and then all the way through uh, the the uh, from the Renaissance on. So I chose the name Nimrod. I chose God, Nimrod, and the world because I wanted those three components for people to think about as they were thinking about hunting, particularly sport hunting, both of the past but also of the present and of the future. And that is the divine, presumably uh, of creator, whatever you roll with mm -hmm. on that one, but at least according to the Judeo-Christian myths of creation. And then the world, that seems self-explanatory, but it's not. Of course, it encompasses all of that creation that is mm -hmm. described in the opening chapters of the Pentateuch in Genesis uh, in particular, but is also described throughout Scripture, and that is this constant interaction between God, humans, the salvific process or processes, and the rest of nature and the world. And what seems to be a separation of humans from the rest of the world, yet at the same time, this continuing relationship, both by way of whatever you want to see is going on with a fall story, uh, the idea of sin in the world, but also the idea of redemption in the world. And so uh, I was looking at Nimrod because I came across it in, in the book of Genesis. And Nimrod is one of the very few characters in the Bible, Hebrew or New Testament, that is explicitly described as a hunter. The irony mm -hmm. is the character of Nimrod is an ambiguous character. Uh, he mm -hmm. shows up briefly in the genealogies, which nobody reads uh, unless right. you're bored in church, right? And <laughs> But he's described as a mighty hunter before the Lord, and then it's repeated as a mighty hunter before the Lord as if he were simply a – if you wanted to say, dude, you're like uh, – <laughs> I don't know. If I threw a name out to you, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. Uh, but someone who would summarize an entire way of thinking or a way of – uh, behaving. If I said Daryl Strawberry to you, I don't know if that means anything mm -hmm, to you. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you think of a, a talented baseball player who wasted themselves on drugs. I don't know. Right. Uh, something yep. along those lines. Okay. So Nimrod is this proverbial character and he's got this little niche that's bizarre in the Hebrew Bible because he's described as both a mighty hunter in the presence of Yahweh. So what does that mean? That's 
fairly vague, but God is aware of him. But then he is described as the founder of cities and what we may characterize as civilization, the kind of domestication of people and the mm. building of urban areas. So here you have this character who seems to be associated with the wild or entering into the wild that God sees his behavior. And then he's associated with these major civilizations and empires that would emerge uh, in the ancient Near East. So he has been variously interpreted in the Christian tradition as well as in uh, the Hebrew tradition uh, by the rabbis and then later on by theologians, Augustine on forward in particular, in many different ways, many of them negative. However, by the 19th century, with the rise of sport hunting in Britain and in America, as it's kind of an overflow, you begin to see the reclamation of the term Nimrod as not a pejorative, but actually as a, a, a name that they've chosen, a, a, an appellation that is uh, positive, that they are a Nimrod, mighty hunters, as they ride uh -huh. to hounds or they go off to hunt the deer in the woods of the forests. But then we see it become more of a pejorative again in the 20th century with, of course, the disappearance of frontier, uh, the, of course, the, the wiping out of many of the game animal species and the movement to prog uh, the progressive age and with it also the rise of a particularly an urban lifestyle in the United States and North America. So Nimrod is this amazing character that means nothing and everything. It depends upon your Almost like there's so little. he's um, worth pursuing to yeah. see how people have viewed hunting, hunters, the wild, nature, humans' roles in this world, divinely ordained or perhaps yeah. humanly ordained. And that's who Nimrod is. Almost like there's so little, um, there's so little textual evidence about him that others have been able, he's like an empty container that other people can pour their own perspectives into and make him into what they want to make him into. Do, when you um, put together this book with Nimrod in the title and asked other academics to contribute did you was that a struggle at all? Did that um, did that come easily? Because I'm guessing you're a bit of an outlier, even at a place like Baylor, which is in Waco, Texas. You know that to to be a hunter it, there it, it, the, in the academic world. I mean, it, for sure in the ministry world. And I, I opened my review of your book in Christian Century by. Let's see. I I think my line was: I have yet to meet another theologian in a duck blind. <laughs> um, and it's hard to find professors in duck blinds too. So how was it to find professors who would write essays about hunting for your book? It was hard. Uh, so yeah. I had the idea back in 2007 while writing my dissertation and I, I pitched it to a number of presses and I got comments like academic presses and those associated with religion I got a response like uh, "sexy" was one response. Sexy, but we don't think it. We don't think it will sell. And uh, I'll, I'll note, by the way, I haven't made a penny off this book. Uh, yeah. But, but what I am pleased with is that I started just cold calling people. Uh, eventually, I gave up. I think around 2010, I went to a conference in 2011. Uh, met the editor of the Sports and Religion series at Mercer, Joe Price. Pitched it to him. He was strangely interested in it but that's his interest mm -hmm. sports and religion and so i revamped it and started cold calling people to see if they would write the responses were most cases i've never written about this at all uh there were only a handful of people that I had contacted back in 2007 2008 uh that were they were still on board that had written about hunting ethics and the like but mostly around the idea of ethics uh, and not so much anything about history or really any type of biblical exploration. So theolo mm -hmm. theology maybe, but not necessarily anything else. And so I tried to assemble these. So Ted Vitale, Father Ted, uh, had agreed yep. to do it in 2007. He was willing to do it again, obviously, toward the end of his career. Um, you had a number of other people I called, contacted, who midway through the process of writing essays didn't like perhaps my heavy-handed approach to editing uh but 
you know, they, 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 they were still struggling to get their heads around it, but I, I yeah. wanted their voice as I was trying to assemble a complimentary um, list of essays by people with different perspectives, a pro, con, nuanced, etc. Um, and so in many cases I got, well, that's interesting, but. Uh, mm-hmm. That's interesting, but I don't know how that's going to help me. That would be too much effort for me to, to really think about. Um, and then others, though, were willing to jump in. And like Stephen Webb was an interesting one. You know what, Bracey? Yeah, I wanted there, – there were two essays in particular I wanted to ask you about bef- before we go. And one is that Stephen Webb essay because he was a vegetarian and animal rights activist, and, and yet yeah. his – essay in your book is so surprisingly um, even-handed. I mean, he he concludes by, I want to read this quote and get your thoughts on this and, and what you thought when you got his essay turned in. And he was kind of a contrarian, you know, throughout his career, but he writes, the vegetarian and the hunter are moral companions in the treatment of animals. Vegetarians and hunters, unlike consumers of industrial agricultural products, both acknowledge that humans have the power of life and death over animals and that choosing to take an animal's life should be done in a way that does not make beasts of men. Mm-hmm. No, it was beautiful. Awesome. Uh, we went, yeah, we went through several drafts and I mean, he was, he was struggling at one point in time he, in an email he wrote and he said something along the lines of, look, I'm on the fence on this, but without a gun. So in other words, I, I'm, I'm standing at both sides of the, of, of the of what seems to be a debate but I think what he's yeah. arguing is it's not uh, but on both sides but he's not a, he's not a, a participant in it he's he's not a practitioner but I totally I mean I had n- I know idea what he would end up and we worked at it and we worked at it trying to find a topic that he could explore and that would he would find rewarding and then he came out with this essay which I thought was beautifully written simplistic mm-hmm. in all the right ways uh, and very, very clear. And I think what he argued, and he's obviously not here to interpret it for us, but what yeah. he argued was that there was a place for the hunter in the Christian life. It's not for everyone, but the hunter has a place in so much as the hunter, she can she goes out, she experiences nature many times with others. He talks about a fellow named Necratius who goes out with his slave, that they mm-hmm. are immersed in nature, but they many times are also doing things, even perhaps hunting, for the service of others. And that in that process of hunting, they take, and of course the irony is, again, Dr. Webb's life is, is past, is that they take life and death more seriously. Than yeah. the others who consume the 15 million slaughtered animals yeah. that come across their table and they throw the extra meat into the trash or have someone else do it. It for a moment the hunter stops and she considers. Yeah, it goes back. I was going to say it goes back to to what you said earlier, and you've just reiterated it here about the you know industrialized meat. It's you know every every fall here in the Twin Cities, the our local newspaper, the Star Tribune, on uh, one day a week, they will. The back page of the sports section will be pictures, usually of kids shooting, you know, with their first deer, with in kind of the gri- uh, grip and grin, you know, photo. Right. And right. always, always letters to the editor complaining. Always, every year, I can't believe you're, you know, put, putting these pictures in the newspaper, etc. And I'm like, what if we had five pages every single day of? cows and pigs and chickens in slaughterhouses. <laughs> you know, like that would be the reality that, um, of how most people consume meat. Um, okay. I want to ask you about one more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it's, it's a guest I hope to get on the podcast that I found so compelling. And that is Jill Carroll's essay about the cycle of predation and here's a quote from her I'm a human alongside I'm a human animal alongside all other animals living and dying eating and being eaten I accept this reality I accept my place within this reality um to morally condemn predation would be to condemn the whole world I cannot 
bring myself to do that. I love the world too much. So here you've got not, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, not your average hunter, right? Yes, Jill, in many ways. Jill, Car- Jill Carroll is like a leftist uh, scholar of world religions, and yep. yet she's a hunter and defending hunting in your text. The first time I contacted her, she she didn't reply for a little bit, and then she she I believe she wrote back. I didn't call her the first time, and she wrote back and said, "Sorry, it's duck season here in Texas, <laughs> and and I've been busy." <laughs> I was like, That's "All right, awesome. this is fantastic," uh, and we went around it and back and forth. And I think that this essay is perhaps the best expression of both her an argument for as an apologist for hunting, but also for its. Uh, for its validity in a particular yeah. way. And she embraces this, if you will, this acknowledgement of that humans are predators, that we are biologically inclined as omnivores, but also as omnivores, we have historically eaten meat. Uh, Richard Wrangham's argument that cooking meat in particular made us what we are as homo That's sapiens, right. sapiens, modern humans. Yeah. All right. So, But her response is fascinating. Also, it's worth reading in her essay that she talks about being introduced and uh, tutored, as I used that term earlier, in the outdoors by female role models in her life. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's it's a, a very important essay, I think, in that regard because she loves the world, that last component of the title. She loves nature. And again, I grew up in a Pentecostal. It's not only Pentecostals, but a Pentecostal environment. And I remember singing this song all the time. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Yeah, my right. treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I get that, but I don't get that. Yeah, And I think that Jill's argument, and a few others as well, take seriously that idea that this world is perhaps in a sin, whatever that sinful impact is, whatever sin is, however you want to roll with that. It is affected just as we are, yet there's something beautiful, something that we should have uh, a participatory role in, um, and that there's something there to be enjoyed even in the process of life and death. It is rewarding. Mm -hmm. It is fulfilling unlike any other process. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's crazy because her essay is like two pages and, but man, does it pack a punch. Well, there's a lot of other great stuff in there and we, you know, I I thank you for it. Um, I thank you for the book, not only because it's, you know, unique in the marketplace of books that, uh, deal with this very intersection of this podcast, which is religion, faith, spirituality, and, you know, hunting and fishing, but also because I can just go through the table of contents and find guests for my podcast. (laughs) 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 I've already had father Ted on here and, you know, and this is, um, this is why I'd like to have you back on. And I want to give you some time because I know, you know, this is how it works for those of us who are academics, that your experience of of hunting on a high fence ranch and the ethics of it, you're going to have to think about it and process it. And I'm sure write about it. And I look forward to reading whether you write about it on your blog or, or publish it elsewhere. I really would like to read that and then have you back on to discuss it. You know, I, I had Father Ted on a couple episodes back and I texted you afterwards because right. I said, you know, Father Ted says, no way, you can never hunt. You know, it's not <laughs> ethical to hunt a high fence ranch. And you texted me back. Of course, he said that. <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> and, so what I like about it is, you know, and, and we haven't even really gotten into it. And I really want to encourage listeners to go to BracyHill.com and look on that hunting academics um, link on the top because it's it's your blog and it. You have several posts on there about ethics. Um, it, it's just a conversation that I think is so important for us to have about the ethics of hunting. And for those of us who are trying to move away from industrialized meat, and for those of us who did not grow up hunting and are teaching ourselves to hunt and we're thinking about what it means, um, 
yeah, you're providing awesome resources and awesome reflection. And I just think, yeah, you're such, yours is such an important voice with both the, the training in history and the, the, all the study you've done of religion and theology. Plus, you know, you know how you bring your own personal faith and, and background to bear on that. It's, it's top-notch stuff. So thanks. Thanks for your book. Thanks for coming on. And like I say, let's let's uh, circle back sometime in 2021 and talk about the the ethics of the the high fence ranch hunt. What do you think about that? Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'd love to do it again. That'd be awesome. All right, thanks, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Wow, Brandon, that was a great interview. Thanks, you did such a nice job recording and and engineering and producing it. Well, thanks, Tony. I thought it was a great episode as well, and you did such a great job of hosting it. Oh, thank you. What if some people out there listening thought the same thing as us and just wanted to throw their sponsorship towards the show? How would they be able to do that, Tony? Oh, we would love more sponsors at the Reverend Hunter Podcast. If people want to do that, they can get a hold of Karen Cleary at the Talk North Podcast Network, and her email is kcleary. That's K-C-L-E-A-R-Y at talknorth.com. And she will tell you everything you need to know about sponsoring the Reverend Hunter Podcast. We would love to have you as a partner on this show. Thanks a lot. Great question, Brandon. Thanks for throwing it out there for me like it was completely unplanned. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye.